0: This is The Round's Table Hello Round's Table listeners Welcome back to another podcast It's me, Freddie Frost Respiratory Fellow, Liverpool Heart and Chess Hospital In Liverpool, in the UK And I am delighted to be joined by my good friend, Alex Picard who is an emergency medicine trainee at St George's Hospital in London. Alex, hello, welcome back.
1: Hi there, Frosty. Absolute pleasure to be back on the Rounds Table podcast. Thank you, Kieran, for inviting us for a second episode of the Rounds Table with myself and Freddie. A lot of fun was had last time.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's get straight down to it then, Alex. Why don't you introduce the study you're going to talk to us about today?
1: Yeah. So, Freddie, the trial that I have is the polar rct trial which stands for the prophylactic hypothermia trial to lessen traumatic brain injury randomized clinical trial so this was a multi-center randomized trial mainly run out of australia and new zealand from the intensive care research center at monash university in melbourne and it was led by dr james cooper who is an intensivist there and it was published in the JAMA in october 2018
0: Okay, cool. So what's the bottom line here? So in
1: patients with severe traumatic brain injury, they found that early prophylactic hypothermia compared with normothermia, which is the current gold standard of of treatment, did not improve neurological outcomes at six months. So the finding of this paper does not support the use of early prophylactic hypothermia in severe traumatic brain injury.
0: Okay, interesting. So I'm going to admit that I have no critical care experience and certainly no experience of ever thinking about calling anyone down, but it always sounds really interesting when you hear about people doing it. So I'm interested to hear about the study. So what made you choose it, Alex?
1: So personally, this article struck a chord with me just because of, one, that it continues to be a hot topic in emergency medicine and critical care, and there's a lot of dogma surrounding whether or not we should be calling these patients down. And my experience from doing six months in ITU is that there were definitely people in different camps who had very strong opinions. Further to this, traumatic brain injury is a leading cause of death and disability. In Europe, 37% of all injury-related mortality is caused by or associated with traumatic brain injury. The population who experience these injuries tend to be very young, fit, healthy people with often life-changing outcomes, those that have a severe traumatic brain injury, so GCS less than eight, almost half of these patients will have an unfavorable outcome, which means death, vegetative state or a severe disability. So it really just, you know, hit home from that point of view. Further to this, you know, the long term prevalence of this major disability, so the economic and the social cost to communities is extremely high from this.
0: Yeah, so absolutely. These are really life changing events. Uh, What at the moment is current Best practice and how do you sort of manage these people?
1: So, really, the current guidelines all focus on minimizing secondary brain injury and optimizing the prenumbral chance of recovery of the brain tissue. So the current best practice really is first of all adopting an ABC approach to the resuscitations of the patient. And then the long and short of it is trying to preserve normality in all the different systems. And factors in the body. So that would include normoxia, normocarbia, normotension, normothermia, normoglycemia, normonatremia, nursing them with head up at 30 degrees and trying to maintain a cerebral fusion pressure of around 60 millimetres of mercury. The question we're trying to answer today is that should hypothermia be a part of these current guidelines? you know, as a ED physician, I want to basically, you know, give my patients to optimize their care from the door of the ED, you know, with a marginal gains approach, should we be cooling these patients as they come in before they go off to the ICU?
0: Interesting. Great. Okay. So thanks for setting the scene there, Alex. Why don't you tell us a bit about the design of the study and where it took place?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Freddie. So it was a multi-center randomized trial, and it was run between 2010 and 2017. The main study setting was in Australia and New Zealand, but there were also centers in France, Switzerland, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. And the interventions were initiated both out of hospital and in the emergency department. Um, there were also five paramedic agencies involved in the trial and a total of fourteen E D departments, most of which
0: were trauma centers, as far as I'm aware. And you mentioned that it's mainly sort of young people who get these sort of injuries. Is that the sort of patients that they were recruiting? Absolutely, so
1: just to run through the patients involved in the study, so the age was typically between or sorry, the inclusion age was eighteen to sixty. These patients were to have a GCS of less than nine and had either already been intubated or were for imminent intubation. The mean age was thirty four and a half years, and there were four hundred and one men in the trial, ninety nine women, and these patients were normally young, fit and healthy.
0: Okay, excellent. And any sort of key exclusion criteria?
1: Yeah, so the main exclusion criteria were, first of all, significant bleeding and evidence of bleeding. So hypotension, systolic blood pressures of less than 90, tachycardia with a heart rate of over 120, suspected pregnancy, uncontrolled hemorrhage or a GCS of three with unreactive pupils. The reason why they didn't include the patients with bleeding, I, I believe, is because of the effect of hypothermia on coagulopathy and clotting. That's as far as I'm aware as to why they were not included.
0: Fine, that, that sounds good. Okay.
1: And sorry, Freddie, before we move on, just another interesting point is in terms of the types of injuries that these patients experienced were mainly, so I just run through them. So it's mainly motor vehicle, motorcycle, bicycle, pedestrians, patients hit by objects, falls and jumps. In terms of the actual injuries they sustained, so 70.6% of these patients had diffuse brain injuries, which was brain swelling or hemorrhage without subdural or extradural hematoma. And another interesting point that was roughly 50% of those included in the trial had a blood ethanol level of more than 51 milligrams per deciliter. So as far as I'm aware, that is the cutoff for Australian drink drive limits. In the United Kingdom, you can have a higher limit at 80 milligrams per deciliter, but Scotland is 50 milligrams per deciliter, as well as Australia, I believe.
0: Okay, so it's, it's young drunks essentially in the study.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, 50%. Yes.
0: Okay, great. What was the primary question of this study, Alex?
1: So the primary question, Freddie, was that the authors of this paper aimed to determine the effectiveness of early prophylactic hypothermia compared with normothermic management of patients after severe traumatic brain injury.
0: Okay, and what's the intervention? How do they actually go about calling people?
1: So just to begin with, they randomised 511 patients into two groups. So they had their treatment arm and their control arm. So the treatment arm were the patients undergoing prophylactic hypothermia. So they were aiming to cool them to between 33 degrees to 35 degrees Celsius. And they aimed to keep them cooled for a minimum of 72 hours, but aimed to try and cool them for up to seven days with a slow gradual rewarming. warming So the way in which they tried to do this was once the patients had been Recruited to the study, they were given a bolus of up to two litres of IV ice cold 0.9% saline, which was at four degrees, and they also used surface cooling wraps once the patient was in the ED, initially targeting a core temperature of 35 degrees. Once the 35 degrees was achieved, they then assessed the patients further for clinical risks of bleeding. So they underwent FAST scans and various other scans to rule out any evidence of any instability or bleeding. Once the teams were happy that these risk factors had been excluded, they then continued to cool them down to 33 degrees. And that was the target. And again, I think it comes back to the coagulopathy that they didn't want to put the patients at more risk from bleeding. So going on to the control arm, so the control arm, they aimed for normothermia, so aiming for 37 degrees Celsius, and again, up for up to seven days, aiming from 72 hours to seven days. These patients had no cold fluids, but had surface cooling wraps applied once reaching the ITU to maintain them at that temperature.
0: Okay, uh, fine. So what was the primary outcome uh, in the POLAR study?
1: So the primary outcome definition was of a favorable neurological outcome or independent living at six months. And the way in which they assessed this was using something called the Glasgow Outcome Scale Extended Score, G-O-S-E. Now that score, just to tell the listeners a little bit more about what that score is. So it's a score that is well validated. It runs from one to eight. So one is death, Two is a vegetative state. And then from two to eight, you go from lower severe disability up to upper good recovery. So patients were essentially, after they have made their recovery, Someone involved with the study would ring the patients or a patient's member of family and these assessors were blinded so they didn't know what treatment the patients had had and they essentially filled in a questionnaire over the phone. Now, the patients that were classed as having a good neurological recovery were ones that on the GOSE score scored five to eight. So that's patients with a lower moderate disability up to an upper good recovery.
0: Okay, Alex, why don't you run us through what the main findings of the study are?
1: So the main findings of the study were that favourable outcomes, so a GOSE score of 5 to 8 at 6 months, occurred in 117 patients in the hypothermia group, so 48.8%, versus 111 patients, 49.1%, in the normothermia group. So this meant that there was no significant difference between the groups. There was a risk difference of 0.4% with a 95% confidence interval minus -9.4% to 8.7%.
0: Okay. And um, were there any, anything interesting that caught your eye in the secondary outcomes? So the first
1: point I just wanted to make was that despite obviously the allocation to either group, I thought that it was fantastic that 228 of these patients had a favorable outcome from traumatic brain injury, which I think just shows how far we we've come in terms of, you know, critical care and looking after these patients and giving them you know, decent outcomes, young patients with decent outcomes from really severe injuries. There were, from what you just said there, Fred, there were some some interesting secondary outcomes as well. So I'll just run us through a couple of those. So in the hypothermia and normothermia groups, the rates of pneumonia, there's very little difference. So there was 50 55% in the hypothermia group and 51.3% in the normothermia groups, respectively. And again, coming back to coagulopathy and bleeding, there was no significant difference between intracranial bleeding in these two groups. So 18.1% in the hypothermia group and 15.4% in the normothermia group. Other interesting points with it, so that the those in the intervention group only had one day longer on the ventilator so they were weaned from ventilation just as nearly as quickly as those who didn't have the intervention and that bradycardia was more common in the interventional group which makes
0: sense as we've there's lots of evidence that hypothermia you know causes arrhythmia okay thanks alex uh, anything else interesting catch your eye
1: so I think just overall, I think this was a brilliantly executed multi-centre RCT. It's an important issue with very strong opinions and dogma. There was only previously one RCT, which had a lot of limitations in its methods. So this was a good, robust study to give us a bit more information as to you know whether there is any benefit to hypothermia in these patients. I think that it's furthered our knowledge in terms of the marginal gains approach to reducing secondary prenumbral injury. One thing I just wanted to point out was that we need to be careful how this data is extrapolated because there are other trial, recent trials as well, most notably the Eurotherm 3235 trial. Now, not to be confused with that. So that was the use of hypothermia as a sort of a tier two late rescue for raised ICP. So the difference between those two trials is that our patients in the POLAR trial were having early hypothermia, whereas in Eurotherm, they were using it as a second-tier rescue for raised ICP. Now, the Eurotherm three two three five trial showed that there was an increase in harm in the patients that were included in that study, and they actually stopped the study early. So it's just good to separate those two trials because they're quite different, and they're, without reading the papers
0: properly, you can easily sort of extrapolate you know, from both of them. Great. Well, thanks for that, Alex. Do you want to summarise your take on this study overall, then?
1: So it was a well-run RCT of a very important topic. I thought it was a very strong paper with few weaknesses. The only weaknesses that I really came across, or I thought, was that the the doctors at the bedside were not blinded, but the outcome assessors obviously were. And the other thing was just to point out, which again the authors of the study were very open about, was just that there was a high proportion of patients randomized to the hypothermia arm that didn't actually reach their target temperature and also were some patients that needed to be withdrawn from the study as well so 19 percent were not assessed to be suitable and were withdrawn and then 13 percent did not reach the 33 degrees they were still within the target temperatures but they just didn't quite get to the 33 degrees Another interesting point is comparing this paper to papers in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, because again, you know, we're often led to believe that hypothermia, again, in a similar vein, patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who are cool, that, you know, that is a good thing for us to be doing. So I read a few papers around the subject to do that, and actually there's been recent papers that almost mirror the data of what we're seeing here. So there was a paper, which I believe was out of of Scandinavia, I think out of Sweden, targeted temperature management at 33 degrees versus 36 degrees after cardiac arrest in unconscious survivors of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest of presumed cardiac cause. And hypothermia at a targeted temperature of 33 degrees did not confer a benefit as compared with the target temperature of 36 degrees. So that's a very similar findings to what we're seeing with the POLAR trial as
0: well. Okay, so I mean this is obviously a negative study overall, but do you think it's going to change practice?
1: I think it will because I think it will change some people's opinion on people that were maybe pro cooling their patients are now going to change their management protocols and I, and I think the different and again, I think often maybe it was up to the clinicians themselves, maybe whether they decided to call the patients or not. I'm not. I'm not. You know, I th- certainly at my trust that I work in, it, it's not part of their. As far as I'm aware, it's not part of their traumatic brain injury protocol. It definitely isn't. But I think this is more evidence to say that it shouldn't necessarily be part of that. However, again, just going back to those other trials hypothermia can be used in select patients with ICP rising intracranial pressure that is resistant to other as a very late treatment when you're sort of running out of other options to bring the ICP down.
0: Okay great well thanks Alex that's a really interesting study I've enjoyed going through that thanks very much. Thanks Brad. Okay Alex I'm going to crack on with my study and my study was the TWIC study which was published in JAMA and is a study which is titled The Effect of Theophylline as an Adjunct to Inhaled Corticosteroids on Exacerbations in People with COPD A Randomised Control Trial. And the lead author was Graham Devereux.
1: Something I don't know a huge amount about, Frosty. Do you want to take us away with the bottom line of this article?
0: Yeah, so in this randomised control trial, people with COPD and frequent exacerbations, the addition of low-dose theophylline did not reduce exacerbations compared to placebo.
1: Okay. So was there a particular reason why you chose this article, Freddie? You know, how is it important to you and your practice?
0: Yeah, so exacerbations of COPD are a massive health problem, not only to healthcare systems, but also significant morbidity to patients as well. And theophylline is one treatment that is sometimes used, but it is a bit like Marmite. Some people love it, some people hate it. So it's always interesting to see large, well-conducted clinical trials to help guide us in this field now theophylline is most historically used as a bronchodilator however to get the bronchodilatory effect you need to use quite high doses and is often associated with significant side effects now more recently there's been quite a lot of interest in the potential anti-inflammatory effect of theophylline's and particularly interesting because the anti-inflammatory effect can be mediated at much lower doses so the hope that sort of led to the study was that you could give people low-dose theophylline and get some of the benefits of anti-inflammatory properties, but not any of those side effects.
1: So I'm fascinated to hear the findings of this study, mainly because in my experience of theophylline, is sort of using it as a fourth or fifth line treatment for these sick asthmatics coming into the emergency department. And I think a lot of the side effects that are associated with it, we don't necessarily see in the ED. We treat our patients, they get better, and then we refer them on to the physicians, yourself, Freddie. And then I think that you then end up dealing with all the problems of the
0: said drug that we've used. That's uh, particularly insightful from you, Alex. (laughs) But yeah, there are nasty side effects, so tachyarrhythmia is... Uh, people feeling nauseous and also as you mentioned the interactions with a whole host of drugs that often you spend hours checking so yeah they do cause a big burden to patients and and clinicians alike
1: and just further to this, what also made me very interesting was the fact that I did not know until today that theophylline is found naturally in cocoa and tea. So there we go. Oh,
0: yeah. I didn't know that either. Interesting.
1: Should we move on, Freddie? Uh, we digress.
0: Yeah. So we'll move
1: on to the methods. So can you take me through the design of the study and where it took place?
0: Yeah, so essentially this is a double-blind randomised control trial that took place across the UK. It was interesting and it was it was primarily a primary care based study. So patients were identified and over half of them were recruited in primary care and they were followed up in sort primary care research centers, which is unusual for a sort of large respiratory study of this size. The study investigators recruited adults with confirmed diagnosis of CAPD, and they were only really interested in people who were using inhaled corticosteroids and were frequent exacerbators. So they had to have at least two exacerbations in the last year. They defined an exacerbation as the use of oral antibiotics or oral steroids or requiring hospitalisation because of chest problems. The main exclusion criteria were ischemic heart disease probably because didn't want increased risk of tachyarrhythmias in that population. And of course, as you mentioned previously, the use of other drugs that are likely to interact with theophylline itself. So Fred, sounds
1: like a very interesting population, you know, with, with patients with frailty, polypharmacy and the like. Um, do you want to take us through the primary intervention for this trial?
0: Yeah, so the, the main... Question that the study investigators wanted to answer was whether low dose theophylline could reduce exacerbations. So to do that, participants were randomised to fifty two weeks of placebo, so a placebo capsule, or the intervention arm was theophylline two hundred milligrams modified release. Now the specific dosing was actually based on a number of determinants that, that affect your theophylline steady state plasma levels, and dosing is that they based the dosing on ideal body weight and smoking status, because those those are the two main determinants. And they were aiming for a steady state of one, one milligram per litre to five milligram per litre. So much lower than the 10 to 20 therapeutic window that we're looking for when we're thinking about bronchodilation. So yeah, really is low dose theophilin that they're going for here.
1: Great. So further to this, Freddie, do you want to just take us through the primary outcomes of the study, if that's okay?
0: Yet, so the primary outcome that they were interested in was the number of exacerbations of COPD requiring antibiotics or steroids during the 52-week study period. Now, interestingly, the way they measured exacerbations was purely based on patient recall. So the patients were seen or spoken to periodically during the study, but the main outcome was derived from the patient telling study investigators how many exacerbations they had had in the last year once they completed the study. The secondary outcomes that they were interested in were hospitalizations for severe exacerbations and quality of life scores, some spirometry, and also things like adherence and safety outcomes.
1: Okay. Just further to that, Freddie, how did, interesting, how did they define an exacerbation? Was that someone that was treated as an inpatient in hospital, or was that someone that just had, you know, required, let's say, a primary care appointment and then was treated from there? What was the sort of cutoff, do you know?
0: No, so it was purely based on whether or not they had treatment. So it was whether or not they needed antibiotics or steroids during that 52 week study period hospitalizations would obviously be counted as part of that but equally if they had just a course of antibiotics from the practice nurse or the gp that would go down as an exacerbation as well great thanks for clarifying that so moving
1: on so can you tell us the main findings of the study
0: yeah so this study randomized just under 1600 participants so there's about 8800 in each arm now, over the course of 52 weeks, there was a 25% dropout rate in both arms, so not just treatment in the placebo arm as well. And so that meant about 600 ended up completing the 52 weeks. So, just to tell you a bit about who was in those 1600 participants, the population had an average age of 68 years of age. About 80% of them were receiving triple inhaled therapy, and the average uh, predicted FV1 was 50%. In the previous 12 months, on average, participants that had three to four exacerbations, so we're really talking about the frequent exacerbator sort of phenotype here. In terms of results, so for the primary outcome, there was no reduction in exacerbations in the theophylline arm when compared to the control. Both groups did actually exacerbate less frequently than the year before, but in the theophylline group there was 2.24 exacerbations per year compared to 2.23 exacerbations per year in the placebo group. So pretty much identical. Equally, in terms of the secondary outcomes, there was no difference in quality of life, no difference in the safety or the spirometry outcomes. There was a small signal towards less severe exacerbations in the theophylline group. So there was less hospitalizations for severe COPD exacerbations in that intervention group. And that gave an absolute risk reduction of about 5% in that group.
1: Very good. So, Frosty, do you want to take us through to the discussion? So are there any, well, are there any interesting points or observations that you wanted to make about the study?
0: Yeah, sure. So I I think it's an interesting study. It is, as you sort of alluded to earlier, it's in a population who are quite frail. They're, they're frequently exacerbating, so people get excluded from quite a lot of COPD studies usually. And because of that, the study investigators adopted a pragmatic design and that enabled them to perform this study in yeah, difficult population to conduct randomized controls trials. Overall very little difference at all between groups. I found it interesting that both groups reduced their exacerbation rate from between three and four in the year before down to 2.2 in the study year itself and that sort of I think harks back to the fact that in general people in clinical trials tend to have better health outcomes probably because they're being followed up more regularly being checked on by a nurse maybe perhaps they're more motivated to in terms of adherence and uh, other uh, sort of quality indicators. But overall, there is very little to suggest from this study that there's a meaningful benefit for oral theophylline.
1: you saw my thunder there, Freddie. I was going to uh, say that the the interesting point I thought you made was again that the both groups exacerbated less frequently, and I think you've just highlighted what I was going to say it's just very interesting the fact that they were enrolled in a study and they were obviously more motivated to adhere to the treatments to follow up their appointments you know, see both their primary carers and, their, and the people following up the study more regularly than the normal person. I also really liked how this was, you know, a sort of a real world study. These are the COPD patients that we are seeing coming into the emergency departments that are very frail, very unwell. And like you said, you know, often with these clinical trials, trying to extrapolate outcomes and data from almost sort of false conditions in an RCT, you know, I, th- I think this is a really good trial.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. The other thing we sometimes have to take into consideration when you see the improvements in sort of exacerbation rate from people just being in the trial, even when they're on placebo, is that whether or not they're actually just regressing to the mean and they caught the attention of the investigators because they are exacerbating more frequently than before in the year before. And actually they just had a bad year and they're just going back to their baseline. That's the only other thing to bear in mind.
1: Okay, so moving on, Fred, do you want to tell us a bit about the limitations that you found from the study and anything we haven't discussed?
0: Yeah. So I think the study outcome is definitely worth discussing. So as I mentioned, the frequency of exacerbations was purely measured on patient recall. So at the end of the 52 weeks, the investigators asked the study participants how many exacerbations they'd had, how many courses of antibiotics or steroid they had, and that made up the primary outcome. Now, intuitively, that doesn't seem like it's the most robust or most rigorous outcome. And is it could, does rely on recall and could potentially be subjective or influenced by sort of extrinsic factors but actually the study investigators point out that it's been well validated in a number of settings people with COPD and ischemic heart disease are able to recall treatment events pretty well up to one year and just to be sure the study investigators did do a subgroup analysis of actual patient records to occur and uh, to check agreement between patient recall and the electronic health record. And they did find acceptable agreement. So although that outcome does seem intuitively relatively weak, I think it is actually pretty robust.
1: The other question I just wanted to ask Freddie was that was this trial a was it blinded in any way? Did the patients know that they were taking the drug? And did the physicians know that they were prescribing the drugs?
0: No, it was were blinded. Yeah. So it was a capsule that looked at the placebo as a capsule that looked identical to the theophylline tablet.
1: Great. And the physicians didn't know that. They didn't know whether they were getting theophylline or not.
0: Yeah, no, it was yeah, so they, they didn't know who was, who was getting
1: it. So moving on again, Freddie, do you want to just summarise your take on the strengths and the weaknesses of this paper?
0: Absolutely. So overall, I think this is a well-designed study, pragmatic design, uh, using patient recall as outcomes. It was adequately powered to detect meaningful differences in exacerbation rate, but there does not appear to be a role for low-dose theophylline for reducing exacerbations in that frequent exacerbated phenotype of COPD
1: fantastic
0: so i think that brings us to the end of
1: the discussion of your paper freddie and moving swiftly on to one of our favorite parts of the
0: rounds table that we look forward to the good stuff segment absolutely so this week i'm going to talk about a study that was published in the journal of paediatrics and child health got a bit of media attention it's called everything is awesome don't forget the lego and it's essentially a study of the transit time of a piece of Lego from in six paediatric healthcare professionals. So they recruited these healthcare professionals, gave them a bit of Lego to swallow, and measured how long it took to come through until they saw the Lego again. Now, really interesting for me is the novel outcomes that they used here. The stool hardness and transit score, a.k.a. the SHAT score, has been used for the first time. And they've also developed the found and retrieved time, the FART score. So for those who are interested, the average time was 1.7 days. And there was uh, a few signals that females were more accomplished at searching through their stores than males. But they couldn't actually statistically validate that. So overall, I, thought, I just thought it was a really funny study. I, I really enjoyed the media coverage on it. And I hope that uh, we can all apply that in our everyday practice.
1: A common problem in pediatric emergency medicine, many parents coming in with similar stories. And so I found that paper very interesting. I actually listened to one of the authors at the MSA 18 conference teaching about teenage stabbings, an absolutely fantastic team. And I would recommend everyone check out their website. Don't forget the bubbles, really good for pediatric teaching and pediatric emergency medicine. So that brings me on to my part of the good stuff segment. Which was just something that caught my eye on the Twitter sphere, that was a uh, story from Norway.
0: Okay, tell us more.
1: So, this was an article that I came across again. It was on Twitter, but it was on a website called thetribunist.com. And this was regarding the use of an F 16 fighter jet that was called in to save a man's life.
0: Save him? So, what, what, what happened? So
1: there was a patient that was very unwell in a hospital that the intensive care units at that hospital felt that he needed ECMO in order to save his life. But unfortunately, he was too unstable for transfer. And the nearest ECMO machine was in a hospital in Tondheim, which was 280 miles to the south. And it would take more than ten hours to sort of transport the ECMO machine by car, and they believed that the patient would die before that the ECMO machine would arrive. So I'm not quite sure how the idea came about, but someone from the intensive care unit uh, spoke to a contact in the Norwegian military, and because they knew that they had flight paths in this area, and you know, posed the question: Would they be able to deliver the ECMO machine? And in just an unbelievable act of, I guess, military power and speed, the Norwegian army or the Norwegian Air Force said, absolutely. And I think within 30 minutes, they had transported this ECMO machine, the 280 miles in in an F-16 fighter jet and delivered it to the other hospital. So I've got a quote from those involved. So Lieutenant Colonel Klepp was quoted as saying, we usually spend about 35 minutes on this flight, but because of the special cargo, the pilot gave it a bit extra and he was there in less than 25 minutes, which I just thought was absolutely incredible. Um, and in total took 40 minutes from the first phone call to the delivery of the equipment to the hospital in Bodhi And, you know, this chap was hooked up to ECMO.
0: That is uh, quite impressive. It sounds like something I've top Gun.
1: So you might say that that was a highway to the danger zone, Freddie.
0: <laughs> well, Alex, you can you can be my wingman anytime. Just a
1: walk in the park, Frosty. A walk in the park.
0: Right. So with that, we'll wrap this thing up. So thanks very much for listening. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Two interesting papers and look forward to what's up next week. Thanks very much, Alex. Thanks very much, guys. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind the scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director Grace Zhao, segment director Shaliza Halani, host director Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the rounds table Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.